Portions of the following program may be pre-recorded. The following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel. He binds the broken He heals the wounded soul. The Father of all heaven, I give you full control to have your way in me. Set my spirit free Jesus bring revival And start your work in me Let me read for you a passage of scripture that when I hear it read, I always go to sleep. And I go to sleep because it's so deep and it's so difficult to understand and get a handle on that I just go to sleep on it. Most of the book of Ephesians, by the way, is that way. I've been encouraging some of you to read the book of Ephesians and you've been having a hard time reading it because it doesn't make sense to you. The words and the concepts are deep, 
Today, I want to read this passage passage of Scripture, and then I want to take you into the Old Testament and unfold the practical reality of what's being spoken of here. Ephesians, the third chapter, verse 2 to verse 12. Surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is, the mystery made known to me by revelation. As I've already written briefly, in reading this, then you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to men in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body and shares together in the promise of Jesus Christ. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all of God's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly realms. According to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord, In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. Okay, so he's speaking about the administration of his grace. And he's speaking about the administration of his grace because he wants to do something that will demonstrate his power before the rulers and authorities of the heavens, which we can't see, demon powers. And if any of you have attempted, after walking in a life of sin, to turn to Jesus Christ, you will know I'm talking about dreams, I'm talking about all kinds of demonic manifestations as they come against you and try to demand that you not be transitioned into the kingdom of heaven, but that you remain in the darkness with them. Anyone who has spent hours and hours watching television and the darkness of television, anyone who has feasted on all the things of the world and then makes a decision to follow Jesus, that person is going to come under very severe spiritual attack, and it is real. It is very real. And it's manifested in demonic dreams and nightmares and even perhaps physical manifestations of demons. So we're looking at the administration that God wants to use to bring a testimony to those demonic powers that they cannot possess his people, that by his blood they can be set free and delivered. Well, then we need to talk about what's the administrative process that God is going to use. And I want to tell you that that administrative process is called in Scripture the school of holiness the highway of holiness, 
or brokenness, brokenheartedness. If you look with me in Psalm 51, Psalm 51 is the account of a man who has sinned greatly against God, King David, and now he is before the Lord and he's asking for the Lord's mercy. In verse 17, it says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. That word in the Greek for broken means to literally be splattered, like a mirror shattered into a million pieces. No possibility of it being put back together again. So David would think that the sacrifice that God wanted was the sacrifice of a lamb or a bull, a blood sacrifice under the old covenant. But David has grown enough in his relationship with Jesus to know that that's not really what God wants. What God wants is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. The word contrite literally means in the Hebrew to be beat out like a thin piece of metal. To be, to be pounded on until finally it's just thin. When I was a, a young man at summer camp, one of my favorite things to do was the, the metal work where we would take brass or copper and hammer it out until finally it was the right consistency and then to put a picture in it and frame the picture. I still have some of those at home that I made when I was just a young person. That's what God wants to do in David's life. He wants to bring circumstances into his life that will cause him to become so thin that the picture of Jesus can be carved into him. So how does this happen? What's the process? What's the administration process that makes this begin to take place in our lives? I see throughout all of Scripture that there are two destinies that are assigned to every person who decides to become a follower of the Lord God of heaven. We see it in the Old Testament, and we see it in the New. The first is where the presence of God comes, and he gives that new Christian power. He gives him authority. He gives that new Christian talents and gifts. And that person now can take those talents and gifts that he possesses and go do something great. The problem is, when a man or woman begins to take the talents that God has given you, and they begin to go out to try to create for themselves and for God something great, the inner heart is not touched. And so, the outward world can be forced into alignment with the standards of God. We can force ourselves to stop drinking or to stop smoking or to stop cursing or to stop lying or to stop doing this or that 
in the external world. We can force ourselves to stop that behavior. But that's the outward behavior. And what is eventually revealed is the true character of that man or woman from the inside. Then there's another destiny. And that destiny is when a Christian comes before God or a non-Christian comes before God, a Muslim. Any person who hears the call of God in their heart to follow after God and be righteous. And they give God authority to begin to exercise his divine rule over their lives. That person will begin to go through suffering and trial and persecution because God knows he has to hollow that man or woman out in order for the fullness of God to come into that person. I don't know any way to become a true follower of Jesus Christ without going through the pain of being transformed into his likeness. So let's look at just the beginning stages again of of a man's life who began to be changed into the likeness of Jesus. King Saul had the outward power of the kingship given to him. But as we shared last week, there were many instances where Saul in his life was wanting to be very religious or very righteous in his outward behavior, very judgmental in his outward behavior, even at one point wanting to kill his son. But an inward pride became obvious. After he has a campaign and he wins the war, he erects a monument in his own honor. For King Saul, it's about loving himself and about getting other people to love him. For King Saul, it's about power and authority. For King Saul, it's about what people see on the outside, the respect and honor granted to him as the king. Everything was about, you must respect me and honor me. And slowly, because of that, he began to go crazy. He became a madman. We find in Scripture, in 1 Samuel, the 15th chapter, that God rejected Saul. Because Saul refused to go into the school of brokenness. He demanded the right to be the authority. He demanded the right to have his way. And so God rejected him. And now Samuel is told that he is to go and anoint another man. To anoint another man, king, over Israel. If you go back in history a few years, the turn of the century in America, God poured out his Holy Spirit in great power. Some of the men and women that he anointed with that power, a man by the name of A.A. Allen, Such demonstrations of Holy Spirit power have not been seen in recent years. 
He was totally immune to disease. He could speak a word of healing over a person and they would be healed. A woman by the name of Mary uh, Etter walked out of a meeting and she got to the tent door and there were thousands of people in attendance. She lifted her hand up and said, in the name of Jesus, be healed. And every person in that congregation was instantly healed of every disease they possessed. People began to leap to their feet, shouting and dancing. People jumped out of wheelchairs. They could walk. They were made whole. The move of God was so powerful in America, and revival just flowed in this nation. But A.A. Allen, one of the most powerfully used men of God, died an alcoholic. The man who founded Zion, Michigan, died in an insane asylum. Some of the others had their marriages break. David Wilkerson, the man who has been my pastor, who has now gone on to be with the Lord. He spoke as the front person for Catherine Kuhlman Ministries. That's where he became a national figure. Catherine Kuhlman was given such power in the spirit. She'd come out on the stage after Pastor David had preached. The presence of the spirit was there. And she would begin to call people out of the congregation. And they would be healed. I used to listen to her on the radio. And Catherine Kuhlman ended up in complete disgrace. Because of her marriage. And her relationship with men. I could name others. Oral Roberts. Oral Roberts. Pastored a little church. It had been in his family. It was handed down to him. And Oral Roberts thought, I will spend the rest of my ministry, the rest of my life, building this little church. But as he reported it, God sent a spirit into that church of discontent and caused the church to be discontented with him and caused him to be discontented with the church. And he and his wife were finally fired by the church. They loaded everything they had into their old car, pulling a trailer behind. They didn't know where to go except they had some friends in Tulsa, Oklahoma. They had just enough money to get there. They had no, they had no money. They drove to Tulsa to this family, and this family said, you can stay with us for two weeks, and then you have to move on. We can't house you. A pastor heard that he had come to town. And came by the house and said, Oral, would you come and preach tonight to my congregation? I've set a tent up outside the city. It'll seat 5,000 people. Would you come and preach? And Oral Roberts thought, this is my great opportunity. Absolutely, I'll come and preach. He got there that night and it was cold and it was raining. Just over 100 people gathered in that tent that would hold 5,000. He was utterly stricken. He preached the best sermon he could preach, regardless of his discouragement. And as he neared the end of his sermon, people began to leap to their feet in the congregation, saying, I've been healed. I've been healed. And people began to jump up and praise God. 
The evangelist said, will you come back tomorrow night? Yes, it was announced he would be back tomorrow night. He came back the next night. The tent was much more full. He preached wondering, will the Holy Spirit come again? And the Holy Spirit came one more time. And the same thing began to happen. People were healed. They were restored. People were leaping out of wheelchairs. The word had gotten around and the sick had come and they were healed. The third night he came to preach in that tent. It was jammed. Every seat was taken. There wasn't even standing room left. People had to stand outside of the tent. And his question was, will God come again? He knew it had nothing to do with him and it had nothing to do with his preaching. It was the work of the Holy Spirit. And again, the Holy Spirit came. And people by the hundreds were healed. From the offerings from those meetings, he said, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to buy a tent and I'm going to become a traveling evangelist. And he did so. But the night came when the Holy Spirit didn't come. And so he invited everyone to come and stand in a line and he would lay hands on them. Then perhaps the Holy Spirit would come. Slowly, Oral Roberts was taken over by his love for money, by his love for fame. His son was in the ministry with him and had married a wonderful woman. But daddy didn't like her. And so he demanded that she that he divorce her or he would be expelled from the ministry. So he divorced his wife. He married the wife his father chose. And the Oral Roberts ministry today is something that is scorned and laughed at in America. What happened to all of those men? They were granted the authority of Saul. They were granted the external power. And the external power revealed their inner hearts. I can tell you today without any question, the Holy Spirit is coming again. He's going to come in great power in America one more time. But he's not going to come to those who have not been enrolled in the school of brokenness. He is going to test every man and every woman that he will use. And you may have been saying, why have I been going through all of this pain and anguish in my life? Because God has said, I want to take you through the school of brokenness the school of humility, because God wants to use you to do something for his kingdom. Now, I want to show you that in the life of David. David was a handsome young man, but he was the youngest in the family. There were seven older brothers. I'm the youngest in my family, so I understand what it means to be the youngest. It means the big brothers get to beat you up when they want to. They get to boss you when they want to. You don't learn how to be a leader. You learn how to be a follower because you don't have anybody younger than you to lead. And so you just follow everywhere you go. David was sent out as a shepherd, the least important work in the family. And he would go out by himself and he would take an instrument, something like a guitar. We would call it in that day a harp, but it was basically just a very crude guitar. And he would take his sling. For those of you who don't know, a, a sling in that day was a, 
a piece of leather about the size of my hand. It had a leather strap attached to this side and another leather strap attached to this side. You would fold a stone in it. You would whirl that. And when you got the right power in the right position, you would release one of the straps and it would cast the stone with great power a long distance. I played with one many times as a child. They are deadly accurate if you've practiced. Well, David practiced all the time he practiced. He was either singing on his guitar, his harp, or he was throwing stones at some poor tree or bush, finally killing a bear and killing a lion. But he also was very lonely as a shepherd and wept often. You find that as you read the Psalms. The suffering he endured as a shepherd, cut off from his family, caused him to become the greatest hymn writer the world has ever known. One day, as he's out watching his sheep, lonely of heart, singing songs of worship to the God he loved, he sees someone running in the distance. It's his brother. And the brother shouted to him, run, run home now. Dad wants you, run. Why? What's the rush? There's a sage there. He wants to see you. Run. And so David runs and comes breathless into the presence of his father and his brothers and Samuel. Samuel looked at him and saw something that his daddy could not see. Samuel looked at this young man and saw that already in his heart was being formed the character of God. Let me just take a quick aside. All men suffer. All women suffer. But does the suffering cause bitterness? Or does it cause brokenness? For most of us, we've had to fight with whether we become bitter or whether we become better. I want the suffering of my heart to cause me to be utterly broken before God and before my brothers and sisters. I don't want to become bitter. I'm going to talk more about that in just a minute. It was not David's ambition that opened the doors of opportunity for him. It was not luck. It was not positive thinking or positive affirmations that opened the door. The door of opportunity was opened by the anointing power of the Holy Spirit. It was something God had to do. It was not something he could do. And so he kneels before Samuel. Samuel pours out upon his head the oil of anointing. It's in verse 13 of chapter 16. 1 Samuel 16, verse 13. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. This young man immediately recognized what it meant to be anointed by oil. It meant his destiny was to become king. And you would think now that as with Saul, a group of men would gather around him and he would become a powerful leader. That's not what happened. Instead, he is sent back to his sheep. And now he's back herding his few animals, being castigated and 
beaten up by his brothers. And it looks like nothing has changed. But he feels different inside. The anointing of God is on his heart and on his life. Now, while this is happening to David, look at verse 14. Now the spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. In other words, the Lord gave permission for an evil spirit to come upon Saul. Now, everyone who was working for Saul knew that these black moods would come upon him. These depressions would descend upon him, and he could not be dealt with. The only thing that would help was music. And so they began to say, who can we find that can sing sweet music to our king to force this demon presence to leave him alone? And the Spirit of God arranged that David should be invited to come and sing for King Saul. And so he did. And when David would sing, the whole palace would be quiet. Everyone wanted to hear the beautiful music that was being sung by this young man. It was filled with the Spirit of God. But then war came. And the young man is sent back home to take care of his sheep. Now, some of you today understand exactly what I'm saying. You've prayed and you've claimed the promises of God, and then you go home and nothing seems to have changed. You still go to the same job tomorrow. You still have the same heartache tomorrow. The same sins assail you tomorrow. And you say, what's the difference? Is there anything in this thing about God and the Holy Spirit? Yes, you've enrolled in the school of brokenness. And God wants to know whether you will suicide yourself by not believing in him, as Brother David said so eloquently this morning, or whether you will believe the anointing God has put on your life. Will you give up in despair and allow the demonic spirits to sweep over your heart and turn you angry and bitter? Or will you walk humbly before God And believe what he has done will save you. Will the cross of Jesus Christ save you or will it not save you? And if it will save you, what will it save you from? Will it save you from sin or will it not save you from sin? What do you believe? Now, if I come to Coulter, I say, Coulter, you're a thief. I believe Coulter's a thief. Does that make him a thief? That doesn't make him a thief, does it? My believing he's a thief doesn't make him a thief. It's not what I believe or you believe that makes Jesus who he is. He is beyond us. It's not our accusation against God that makes God either unfair or a thief. If God doesn't answer the prayer that we've been crying out before him, it doesn't mean he doesn't answer our prayers. Our reality does not create God's reality. God is reality. So what I think or what I believe does not make God into anything. He is. But what I think or what I believe will make me into something. What I think or what I believe will shape the character of my life. 
and either make me a man of brokenness or a man of bitterness, either a man of hope or a man of total despair. What I believe about the promises of God will create the reality of my life. Your circumstances do not create the reality of your life. What you believe about Jesus creates the reality of your life. I'll talk about David and Goliath at a later time. I want to stay very carefully on this theme. You know the story. David took the Philistine. He killed him. He was a giant. He became a folk hero. He became a mighty warrior. He learned how to use not just the sling, but he also used a sword and was trained as in the use of that sword. He became a mighty warrior. In chapter 18, we find that David and Jonathan became one in spirit. Jonathan knew what the school of brokenness was about, and he loved David with all of his heart. But King Saul did not love David as they were returning from one of their battles. The women began to sing and dance with joyful songs and with tambourines and with lutes. And this is the song they sang. Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Chapter 18 of 1 Samuel, verse 8. Saul was very angry. This refrain galled him. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but with me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. The next day, an evil spirit from God came forcefully forcefully upon Saul. He was prophesying in his house while David was playing the harp, as he usually did. Saul had a spear in his hand, and he hurled it, saying to himself, I'll pin David to the wall. But David eluded him twice. So here's the picture. The king is on his throne, and he has a spear in his hand. David is off to the side, and he's playing this guitar harp for the king, and he's singing the beautiful songs he wrote while he was a shepherd boy. And this evil spirit comes upon Saul, and he says, I know how to deal with this young man. I'll just kill him. Did you know kings can do that? Kings can do anything they want. Did you know Americans can do that? Americans are free people. We can do whatever we want. No, we don't kill with swords. We kill with words. We kill with gossip. We kill with accusations. We kill with what we believe, what we think. But here's the mystery. What do you do? What does David do when the spear thrower tries to kill him? Well, the customary thing, when a spear is thrown at you, go pull it out of the wall and throw it back. David didn't do that. I have to tell you, in all honesty, there have been many times in my life when I've been a spear thrower. I grew up as a a young man with two older brothers, and the game was if, if he hits you, you hit him harder. He hits you back, he hits harder. Next time, you hit harder yet. Until finally one of you is flat on the ground, and you know who was usually flat on the ground. I was raised to throw the spear back as hard as I could throw it. Sometimes I had to be very devious in throwing the sword back. 
or the spear back so I wouldn't get caught. That's how little brothers often function. So what do you do when a spear is thrown at you? You have several options. What did David do? David ducked. He ducked so the sword wouldn't hit him. Secondly, he didn't pick it up and throw it back. He did not defend himself. And third, swords that are thrown, if they hit you, will make you bitter. But if you duck them, they'll still hit your heart and cause you to weep. And they will increase the brokenness of your heart. Now, do you understand? God has said that this young man is going to go to school, the school of brokenness, so that he can be used by God to be the king, a king that he can trust, that God can trust. And so who does he put in as the schoolmaster over David so that he can be graduated from the school of brokenness, an insane king? I can't think of a more dangerous schoolmaster than a crazy king, an insane king, a mad king who wants to kill you. Some of you have bosses that would like to kill you. Some of you have bosses that constantly throw spears at you. Some of you have relationships where you're constantly being speared by your husband or by your wife or by your kids. God chooses the appropriate schoolmaster for every one of us in this school of brokenness. He knows you exquisitely on the inside. And he knows what the circumstances of your life need to be in order to bring you successfully through that school of brokenness. That's why we're called to rejoice in the book of Philippians. Paul says, rejoice, rejoice evermore. It's not a problem for me to say to you, rejoice. Well, where is he while he's saying rejoice? He's being tortured in a prison cell. He's been threatened with beheading. He's in chains. He knows that the Roman government is the schoolmaster over his life that God is choosing to graduate him from the school of brokenness. And so he says, rejoice, rejoice. Your schoolmaster is accomplishing my work in your life. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't like this. But God doesn't ask me if I like what he does. He doesn't even ask me for my opinion of what he's doing. When you make the decision to ask God to exercise his royal authority over your life, and you make the decision to seek Jesus with all of your heart, he will immediately, in his love, send you to the school of brokenness. There is not a shortcut. You know the passage that talks about the valley of Baca? It says, if you set your heart on pilgrimage, you will go through the valley of Baca. Baca in the Hebrew means weeping. You will go through a place of weeping. And then it goes on to say, and the desert will become a place of springs. Water will flow and it will become an oasis. Well, I don't know about you, but I would rather skip the valley of Baca and get right to the oasis. But there is no way to get to the oasis without going through the valley of Baca. 
with a school of brokenness. Now David continues in the service of the mad king. The king still wants to kill him, so he makes an arrangement. He's discovered that his daughter loves David, and it's time for her to be married, and so he offers David his daughter. David is a poor man. He has no money. He cannot pay the bride price. So Saul instructs his servants to go to David and say, look, all the king desires for the bride price is a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. Go kill them and bring them back to me and I'll let you marry my daughter. Hoping that the Philistines will kill him. Instead, he goes out and takes 200. So David now is grabbing for what he wants and taking the life of men, not because God has instructed him to, but because he wants something. And one of the first lessons we begin to be taught in this school of brokenness is that our agendas must be laid down, that if we have our agendas going and we come to God and we pray, our prayers will probably not be answered. So if you've been crying out to God and asking him for something and he has not responded, it's either because he's waiting on you or he recognizes that you are just operating on your own agenda and he wants to deepen this work of the Holy Spirit in your life. Again, an evil spirit from the Lord came upon Saul. He was sitting in his house with his spear in his hand. David is again playing the harp, and Saul tries to kill him again. And again, he does not pick up the spear and heave it back. Now he is driven from the presence of the mad king. And you would think that now God would be ready to deal with King Saul. King Saul reigned for 40 years in Israel. He is the king who established Israel as a unified kingdom. Saul did many wonderful things for God's people. He defeated the enemies on the left and the right. He established a nation. We'll give him credit for what he did. But now you would think that David is ready for the kingship and that God would take Saul out of the picture, but it's not to be. Now for 10 years, David is going to run from King Saul. He's going to sleep in caves. He's going to be chased and hounded. Every time it looks like he's about to be captured, God reaches out and puts his hand over him and gives him just enough space that he can survive one more day. Have you ever experienced that grace of Jesus? Where you're sure everything is going to crash, nothing is going to work, you're going to lose everything, and then God reaches out his hand in mercy and love and covers you just long enough to deliver you from that immediate threat, and then you're right back in your cave life. And you're going to God and you're saying, how long do I have to put up with this? Well, until you're ready to be graduated from the school of brokenness. Until God has worked with his finest power in your heart to change you and transform you 
into a person he can use for the work of his kingdom. Remember, this is about administration. This is about God wanting to do something in our hearts that will allow him to say to the demon powers, have you seen, have you seen my people? Have you seen the suffering they've gone through and they have not renounced my name and they have not given way in unbelief or anger or bitterness? Have you seen the way my people love me? Why didn't God end the whole deal when Jesus rose from the tomb? Because there had to be a demonstration before the universe of a people who could be made holy by the blood of Jesus, who could be restored by the blood of Jesus, who could be set free of all sin, who could walk in joy and peace. He's doing that in our hearts. And some of you have said to me, Pastor, I've done what God wanted me to do for six months. Now, when's God going to do for me what I want him to do? Six months. Look at Moses, 40 years. Until Moses thought his entire destiny was just going to be wiping out the nose of sheep. Moses must have thought his life was over. He had children. He had a wife. This was it. This was all he was going to ever get. And then he's walking in the desert, in the wilderness, with his few animals that didn't even belong to him. He had nothing that belonged to him his whole life. Now, please, some of you, I hope, will understand when I say this. Many men and women come into their life. Now they have been living for 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, 50 years, and they begin to say, what is my life worth? I haven't done anything worthwhile. All I've been doing is following Jesus. And look at what these people who haven't been following Jesus, look at what they have going. They have cars and houses. They have vacations. They have all kinds of things. And what do I have? I have nothing. And suddenly your heart begins to want to say, was it worth it to follow Jesus? Was it really worth it? I'm sure Moses felt that way. And then he saw a bush burning, but it wasn't consumed. And so out of curiosity, not knowing it was God, you understand after 40 years of being under the discipline of God, he could not recognize when God was moving in his life. And the voice of God said, Moses, take off your sandals for you're standing on holy ground. Now, you understand servants didn't wear sandals in the presence of their master. They went barefoot. So God is saying to Moses, you're not the master here, Moses. I am. Take your shoes off. Step onto the hot burning sand. You're a servant here. And you'll do what I tell you to do. And God told him what he wanted. And Moses said, no. (laughs) And it says, the anger of God burned against Moses. And finally, Moses said, okay. Did you know all God wants you to do is finally say, okay. That's what God's waiting for. That's graduation. Okay. It's your way, God. It's not my way. What's David do? He runs to Samuel to tattle on the big, bad, crazy king. I can't tell you how many times I've tried to go tell somebody all of my troubles. 
to tell how poorly I've been treated. And it doesn't do anything to change my circumstances. It doesn't change anything in my heart. It just lets me bask in my misery. God wants to bring us through in victory. He wants us to take responsibility for what we've done and what we've said and where we've gone and how we've acted. He wants us to take responsibility and say to him, I did it. It was me. Remember that old prayer? It's me. It's me. It's me, oh God, standing in the need of prayer. Not it's you. It's you. It's you. It's me. It's me. It's me standing in the need of prayer. So now David runs for the next 10 years. If you read through the chapters of 1 Samuel, you'll finally come to chapter 22. Other men begin to come and join him. Well, what kind of other men became associated with David? Scoundrels, troublemakers, those scorned by the king. So God now brings together a people made up of all kinds of people. And now they have to live in caves and deserts. And you've heard me sometimes say the National Prayer Chapel is in the desert right now. This place is uh, called cave life. God is training us. God is disciplining us. He's preparing us for the work of the Holy Spirit that will be the final proclamation spoken of in Matthew 24. He's preparing us for that final midnight cry of Matthew 25, when we proclaim the bridegroom cometh. But he wants people to make that proclamation that have graduated from the school of brokenness, people he can trust, who will not turn in bitterness, who will not walk in unbelief, who will not go back to their sin, who will walk clean before God. See, it's not about my plan, and it's not about your plan. It's about God's plan. It's the administration of his grace to bring a people through in a very wicked age. We live in one of the most wicked ages of this earth's history. At no time in the history of this earth, save for just prior to the flood, have men's hearts been so given to violence and sin as it is today. So I guess I want to ask you some questions. Have you been throwing any swords this week? Have you been hurling accusations? Have you been hurling bitterness, anger, judgments? Or has anyone been hurling spears at you and have you picked them up and thrown them back? It's well for us to understand what our position is before Jesus. He's calling for a people who will walk through the valley of the shadow of death, and fear no evil. A people who will be willing to feast on the words of Jesus, the broken body and the blood of Jesus. Have you been hit by a spear this week? Is there bitterness in your heart? I urge you to quickly forgive, to not keep that person or that organization captive in your heart, but release them, forgive them. When you don't forgive someone, you keep yourself imprisoned. Have you enrolled in the school of brokenness? You know, I want to tell you honestly. I come to this place for Jesus. But I do not come here just for Jesus. 
I come here for you too. The church is the body of the wounded, where we cover one another. We bind up the wounds of one another. We pray for Jesus' healing in one another. We we walk as brothers and sisters in Christ. The book of Ephesians is about the church. It's not an individual person that God wants to show off before the powers of darkness. It's his church. It's his church. Thank you for listening today. You've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress, brought to you by the National Prayer Chapel. Our mailing address is Post Office Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22195, or visit us online at nationalprayerchapel.com. God bless you. We love you. Trinity